Good morning, everyone. Happy Mother's Day to the mothers out here. And I uh, want to apologize for being late this morning. We're just running a couple of minutes behind. If you will, please pray with me and we'll get started this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We praise you and thank you for the wonderful day you've given us, Father. We we all are grateful for our mothers and our our parents in our lives, Father, and for their leading and guidance in our lives, Father. We we thank you for your guidance and your leading in our lives. We we thank you for your Bible, the your word that is the miracle that you've handed down to us through the centuries, Father. We thank you for that and we ask, Father, that you would help us to study your word and to learn your wisdom and learn about your love and compassion and and put all that into practice in our lives, Father, so that we can be more like our Lord and follow that narrow path to you at the end of time, Father. We thank you and praise you for all your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in chapter 14 of Revelation, chapter 14. And we're looking at question six. Uh, let me just read the first five verses of chapter 14 to refresh our minds of where we are. Then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the live, four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins." These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now we had answered some questions here, and we talked about some different things. We were down to question six which is how are the 144,000 described? And that's in verses 4 and 5, and there are several things we're told about them. Well, we know they're not defiled with women, right? Uh, in other words, they're, they were virgins. This is the way they're described. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. So they're followers of Christ. Now notice too, though, even though it says these other things, it says they are redeemed from among men, right? They were the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Yes, surely. So that is telling us that it is all males, no females. You know, that is the way it sounds. Um, it says that they are redeemed from among men, that they are not defiled with women. So it does make it sound like they're all males. Now, is, you know, I, some people might say that's representative of something, but 
from what uh, from what we see there, that would would make it seem like it is all males, and they were redeemed from among among men. Yes, Pat. Well, maybe if you take it in a very literal sense, it could be that they were they imposed upon themselves a, a being of almost like a eunuch where they did not have relations. Yes. Right. They did not defile themselves. And it also refers to them as mankind. Mankind was purchased to be among the first fruits of God. Right. And and redeemed. They were purchased, right? They were purchased. And um, if you take that in a very literal sense, you could take it that the way the way you're saying that they were actually men, that they did not have relations with women, but but now that's a very literal sense. There is also kind of a spiritual idea that they were forgiven and made pure by Christ, just like we are. So you could think of it that way, Pat. I just thought of something. Isn't there a reference to Paul saying he was a eunuch for Christ? I can't remember. There might be. I don't know. Um, I mean, a, a real eunuch, of course, has uh, physical things done to them. So that's, I mean, there is there is that. Right, and that's why he would say that in a spiritual way. If if he never, you know, if he was never married or never did anything like that, man. Think about this great assembly, one hundred forty-four thousand. That's like an army, God's army. Mm -hmm. you know, there may be a reference back to um, how when the Israelite soldiers were actually, of course, they were men, right? It was right, men, and that part of what they were supposed to do was to not um, not be with women as part of becoming holy. Holy war, we might say. Uh, so there may be some reference to that symbolically that you know the people of God are are holy. Be holy as I am holy, right? So that may be part of what we're thinking about. Right, and and if they were, if this is to that that idea of, of this being God's army and this being the men of war, and if you think back in the the old days when you had the men of war, it was just men. There were, there were not women, and they would abstain from different things like sex to be holy and to be committed to that purpose at that time so that they would be holy and clean before God at that time. Yes, Pat? Uh, I've seen different movies where they'll have um, that brought up. These men were not with women. And I think it's because they could fight for their reason for fighting because they didn't have a family at home or a wife to worry about. So they could easily fight and give themselves up because they had nothing to go home to. Okay, so you're looking at it like okay, so so you're looking at it like if they had no family, they weren't married, they weren't didn't have children, that uh, then they would be able more able to fight because they didn't have anything. They they weren't what I guess you're saying they wouldn't have a family that it would it, huh that would time down so they'd be freer to fight. Um, and that could be the case. That that could also, it depends how you look at it. Sometimes a mother or a father will fight much harder than someone who doesn't have anything to fight for. So it depends on how you look at it. If, saying that they don't have any family or they don't have any kids, that might make them freer to fight, but would it encourage them to fight more than if they had a family and had kids? So... It doesn't say, and we're kind of 
probably getting off track here, but, uh, you know, it's one of those things. There's a lot of things you can think about there. And I wasn't thinking of all these different things, so this is good. Yes, Kim? Right. Right. Jesus is the captain of this army. This is the Lord's army. If we if we just say even just from a spiritual sense, this represents the Lord's army and Jesus is the captain of that army. Right. And. Um, so, yeah, so these are all I mean, these are all good. The, the main idea here is that they are spiritually and morally pure following Christ. And uh, I'm sure that. um that that's part of the reason that they're viewed as being, you know, a part of the church as a whole, or uh, some people may think that that represents the church as a whole. But then if you think of it as a standing army, you know, it does bring up these other things. But this is a spiritual, I really believe this is a spiritual representation of the Lord's army. So, all right. So does anybody have anything else on that before we move into the next verses? I don't want to cut anybody off. Okay. All right, so if we look at verses 6 through 13, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. So if we look at the questions for this, uh, question seven, what did the first of the three angels have in verses six and seven? The everlasting gospel. The everlasting gospel, right? To preach to those who dwell on earth. Now you'll notice that while the beast killed anyone who did not worship it or the idol, 
God simply has the gospel preached, right? And this agrees with our mission. It's part of our mission to preach the gospel. But we're not going out and preaching people, and if they preaching to people, and if they don't agree, we don't kill them, right? So, I mean, because that's kind of a finality to things that we don't want. But again, God is offering salvation to people before handing out judgment. And uh, there are some who say that this angel kind of represents the church, God's people evangelizing the world, which would kind of make sense. It goes along with some of the other things we see here in these verses. So uh, what did it say? What did this angel say? Right, fear God and give him glory for the time of his judgment has come. Worship him. Yes, man. It's kind of interesting that he's, uh, it's, he's giving this eternal gospel, the good news, right? But, but what he's saying is about judgment, which we tend to think, well, that's bad. <laughs> but, it's, but it's judgment, he's vindicating the saints, right? So that the saints aren't coming and being destroyed, they're being vindicated. So it is good news for the people of God. Right, it is good news for the people of God, that's right. And uh, it, it is, you know, there is vindication for the saints, for those following the Lord. And, and we'll see more of that as well. So if we look at question eight, what did the second angel say? Babylon has fallen. Babylon has fallen, right? Because she made the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, here the word for fornication, well, if you just define fornication, Fornication would be like sexual intercourse between people that are not married. And that that would cover quite a bit of stuff. But the Greek word here is porneia, and I think that's close to the correct pronunciation. And it's where we get the uh, word, or it's the root of the word pornography. And it's a word that's used several times, several, well, probably more than several, but I have several examples. Um, it means sexual immorality of any kind. It really covers a lot of things such as premarital sex and adultery and homosexuality and incest and other things. We don't have to talk about all of them. But it's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 19 verse 9 where he says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And then same word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. He says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality, now it's a different version of that word, but it's the same word, sins against his own body. And it just covers a whole host of sexual sins. Let's see. Um, did you? Yes, Kim? Where they did not defile themselves. Oh, right. In this verse, they have. They have. Right, talking about Babylon, and there is that comparison or juxtaposition, however you want to think of that, is like God's people, they're pure, they're moral, and then you have Babylon, which to me, Babylon throughout Revelation really represents sinful, rebellious man who rejects God, and, and it shows that immorality. Right. And pollute and corrupt others, right? Yes. Whereas this, this one angel is preaching the gospel 
And, and, you know, as God's people, we should be spreading the gospel. But here, Babylon is actually getting others into their sinful nature, into their sin. Yes. Right, made all of them to drink or join in with their sin, right? Yes, Matt, I'm sorry. I agree with what you're saying, that Babylon kind of, we would apply that to all of sinful man. Uh, but I, I think um, maybe for John's first readers, he would be thinking of Rome, Rome specifically as sort of the the world embodiment of that at the time. They And then thinking about how Rome's influence caused uh, all of the nations to drink of that so to speak, that, that influenced all these other uh, vassal states to also get involved in idolatry and the mistreatment of Christians and all the, all the things that were you know, sinful. Right. For them, historically, they would be looking at their society then. Just like I'm, I'm kind of saying that this looks at society, you can relate this to society as a whole throughout time. Back then, yes, that society. Look at today's society today. Yes, again, you can relate that. And back then, to them, they would have been looking more at the society they had. They were under the rule of Rome, so Roman society would be, you know, represented by this sinful nature as well. It would That would be their most immediate way of reading this and taking this. But for us, we kind of have to look at this. There's kind of layers. There's the historical meaning that it would have had for them, but there's also that spiritual meaning that we have to apply to ourselves. So we have to have um, at least at least that dual layer of looking at it so that we apply these things. It's like the letters of the churches in the first of Revelation. It says to these churches. But we don't specifically just write that off and say that's not for us. We apply those lessons and those things and those letters to ourselves too, right? To our congregation. So, But yes, Definitely to the people first reading this back in the first century, they would have equated all this to Rome, Roman society, the practices they saw around them in their world, all the ungodliness in those temples that was going on. They would have seen all that and related all this to that. So, and we want to remember too, Babylon has kind of another connotation back in the Old Testament, right? Babylon oppressed Israel, captured Israel, and destroyed Solomon's temple. So there's there's multiple layers to this, but Babylon basically is an enemy to God's people throughout the Bible. Um, and then there was one mention of, if we remember, Babylon is the ancient site of the Tower of Babel, Right? where men were rebelling and they were going to build their own tower to heaven and we're going to get to heaven and, you know, go back to be with God on our own power in our own strength, right? So there was this rebellious nature even then, back then. So there's kind of that relation too. I'm sorry, does anybody have anything else on that? All right, so if we look at question nine, what did the third angel say? Those who worship the beast and his image and receives the mark shall drink of the wrath of God and be tormented with fire and brimstone forever. That is the, the quote that I have here. And, you know, this is a brief mention of the unhappy 
end of those folks who reject God, who choose not to follow the Lord. And, you know, we're going to see more of that type of thing later because this is, this is before we get into the full judgment that we're going to see in the chapters to come. But you notice they received their mark of ownership with the beast. Did you have something, Maddie? No, I'm just Oh, okay, sorry. Surely. Forehead, would that be like, um, well, <laughs> the thing that popped up in my head was okay, like out west they brand the cattle, right? Right, I always think of stuff like that too, yeah. But, uh, is that what they're talking about? I don't know if they're talking about an actual Yes, and that and that's what my I'm looking at the New King James version myself, and that's what it says too. It says receives his mark on forehead or on hand, and um, it sounds like they're talking about like a brand or something. But to me, I, I think of it more of as a spiritual thing because I don't, I've never seen anybody that actually had any kind of brand. You know, other than tattoos and stuff, him and Dan Dan. These people of the ancient Bible times were nomadic people and tribals and lived with their clans. And it's my understanding that in their culture, they did mark their faces to be, to show, to signify they were connected to that tribe or that group of people or that. Tribe. Oh, so you're thinking kind of like a tribal marking that some of them used to do tribal markings on themselves so that they would know they belong. Well, they did do piercings too, and, and some of those signs and some of those things were a sign of slavery and ownership as well. So yeah, there's there's that. Dan, yes. I think the mark of the beast, what it's talking about is just that you think of doing evil stuff for the devil when uh, you think of the mark of the beast. You know, you're portraying uh, the evil stuff rather than being with God thinking of you know, doing the right thing for the Lord. And that's what I kind of understand. I read some of this myself. Right. But I didn't, I didn't have someone to teach it. So it's more like a, an outward sign, right? It's well, not necessarily... You portray that you're all a bad person, you know, and, uh, like that, where the, that's more of a mark. Yeah. What you think against the Lord, you're against the Lord rather than with the Lord. Right, because you're, yeah. So it's more of a more of a spiritual connotation in that you're aligning against the Lord and that you're aligning with Satan. Right, right, we do. Yes. Right. Yeah, it's just another. The, the real sign of our allegiance comes from the fruit of our life, right? From the works that we do and the things we do. Right, right, right. And they, they make it sound that way, but I, I, I believe it's more of a spiritual thing rather than like a tattoo or something, too. Yes, ma'am? Yeah, I guess I kind of think it's more of a spiritual idea, too. And it's, it's the idea, on the one hand, the saints are sealed with the Holy Spirit, right. given a mark. God sees that almost like Shirley was saying a brand, right? Mm -hmm. God sees that and recognizes His people. Or do we have 
the seal, the, the mark, you know, of, of following Babylon, the evil ways of the world. You know, we, we're either one or the other. So that's, I think that's interesting. Yeah, we are. We're either one or the other. We're either sealed by God with the Holy Spirit, or we're, you know, we're part of the world and part of the sinful nature and part of the evil of the world, and that. That's the two ways to go, and and I think this is something more that uh, it's more of a spiritual thing, and God easily sees that. You know, what's what's our mind on? What are we thinking of? What are we doing? Do you have something, Pat? Yeah, I, I was just thinking about World War II and the Jews uh, during the Holocaust. They had their numbers on their yeah. concentration. They tattooed them on their. Yeah, forearm. Thank you. Yes, yeah, so yeah, they tattooed the Jews on their forearm in in the in those camps in World War Two. Yeah, so and uh, I mean, you could easily we could easily nowadays we could easily chip and barcode everybody if we wanted to, but uh, I, that's not really what this is. I don't really think this is that's what this is talking about. But you could easily do that nowadays. I mean, we have the technology, uh, but this is really more of the spiritual thing about who are we following. You know, and are we sealed as part of God's church, part of his army, or are we, you know, following the world? Does anybody have anything else on that? Okay. So, if we look at question 10, what does John say is the patience of the saints? And that's in verse 12, right? Right, right. There is a patience and endurance required by believers, right? It says, it says, those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Of course, I think I'm, I think that's coming again from the New King James Version. Yours may read slightly differently. We don't speak quite like that today, and the way that's phrased, it always sounds a little odd to me. But I looked in the New English uh, translation. Sometimes that translation will be a little more plain spoken. And it says, this requires the steadfast endurance of the saints, those who obey God's commandments and hold to their faith in Jesus. And that just means, you know, again, we need to persevere to cling to our faith in the Lord. So I just thought that was a little clearer stated, you know, a little easier, a little easier for me, at, at least. So, so um, question 11. What did a voice from heaven say? So we have two voices here. Or, well, we have two sayings, I guess I should say. But the voice from heaven says, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And then what did the Spirit say? Yes. Yes, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. So, so what has changed? Why? Why now? Right. Right. The Lamb has been victorious, and uh, Jesus has ascended. Right. And we've been forgiven. We've we've taken part in baptism and been 
died and rose again in Christ, right? So that would have started, and so that actually would have started with Jesus' ascension, right? So not so much a futuristic thing, but this is like speaking of something that they were living in and we are living in that time where blessed are the dead in Christ, right? So we look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. It says, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. And it's just speaking again about, and it's kind of contrasting the difference, the, the reward for the faithful versus the punishment for uh, those mentioned in the previous verses who, who are rejecting God. So making that, that comparison or contrasting again. Yes, Kim? They were, and that's another thing, like when Matt mentions how they would have looked at this, they were going through real persecution, the likes of, we don't really know. We don't really experience that type of persecution. So historically, they're looking at this, and these are words of great comfort and reassurance and saying, look, just hold on because keep your faith because there is a better life coming, you know, and you will have that rest and that better life if you maintain your faith. But they were being persecuted and tortured and killed. So, yes, man. Back to verse 12, just as the perseverance of the saints, right? To endure all that, to die in the Lord. Yes, yeah. That's why he's encouraging them, you know, you must have this perseverance and endure. Right. And so, and so this, this does apply to us today. It's just, like I said, our persecution is nothing compared to what they, they went through. So, so uh, we want to look at uh, the next verses, unless someone has anything else on that. Verses 14 through 20. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp angel, I mean sharp sickle, sorry about that, and another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. So if we look at our questions here, question 12, in the first of the two harvests, 
Who did the harvesting and what was reaped? So we would say in the first, one like the Son of Man, right? So we're saying that's basically the Lord, right? He is reaping, and what is he reaping? He's reaping, he's reaping the earth. He's reaping, let's see. Um, he's reaping the harvest, but he's reaping the good harvest, right? Yeah, he's reaping the souls of Christians, right? Did you have something, Dan? No, Okay, okay, thanks. Um, uh, yeah. I'm yeah. just wondering, my mind is so visual. Is there, is there an image for this section? I'm not sure if there is. Oh, um, actually, I didn't think there was. I think the next image, let me see what the next image is. I'm just visualizing this, this reaping of the earth with the sickle. Yeah, I think we actually skipped to the bowls on the next images. Oh, okay. So so there wasn't an image for this, but if you can try to picture this, and this is this is the Lord reaping Christians reaping the, the souls of the saved. Yes, Kim? Yeah, Matthew 9, verse 38. Jesus refers to God as the Lord of harvest. Right, the Lord of the harvest. Right, right. So Jesus refers to him as the Lord of the harvest. And yeah, yeah. And, and that's why, and remember, and he used that analogy of like sowing seed, of harvesting grain, he used that analogy right a lot to uh, to teach us that that's how he was looking at the earth. And there's there's the weeds, and then there's the the good plants, right? The wheat. So let's see. Um, okay, so. He was he was reaping the earth, the souls. You know, this this reminds us of some things that we see back in uh, uh, like Daniel chapter seven, uh, verse thirteen. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And then there's another reference that the Lord made, Matthew twenty four verse thirty. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So that's just two things that remind us of this and remind us of this description here of him coming again in the clouds or on the cloud and, and reaping the earth. Same. Oh, yes, Matt. So, and then so I guess, I, I don't know if I've read this as closely before, but is it is it that the Son of Man, Christ, is with the first sickle bringing home his saints and then the angels? The yes. The blood and stuff at the end, that's like the angels reaping the earth with the flaming fire and judgment? Is right. It's contrasting the two. I, I'm sorry if we weren't clear on this, but it's contrasting the two. The Son of Man is Jesus coming to reap the earth of Christians, the souls of those the, the, of the saints, right? So he will claim the saints. 
for his own. He will take them. And then this second reaping we read about in the next verses, that is uh, basically, you can call it the reaping of Babylon or the, or the sinful, those who have rejected God. And they're going to face uh, the wrath of the wine press. Yes, Pat, I'm sorry, I forgot for a minute. Yes, he says he'll separate the wheat and the yeah tares or chaff, depending on your translation. But yeah, he's going to separate that out, and that's what that's what we're seeing. Another uh, this is another vision of that type of separation of the reaping of the earth and the good, and then the bad, and it goes along too with what uh, Jesus has mentioned back. I think it was also in Matthew twenty four about. There'll be like two in the field, and one will be gone, and one will not. And he's showing here that the, the reaping is going to occur in this order. And we can plainly see that. Um, let's see. All right. Are we running? I, I was a few minutes behind. So, yeah, we're running late. So I've used up all our time. So we will pick up with uh, question 13. We'll continue speaking about these reapings next week, okay? Thank you for your time and your attention.